peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That's what the angels announced at the birth of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago. He will be called Prince of Peace. This was foretold of him by the prophet Isaiah. Our decorations glimmer with the words of joy and hope and peace. Yet we turn on the news and we read 29 Christians killed in Egypt. Evangelical pastor imprisoned in Iran. Atlanta fire chief fired for religious views. We say that the Christ of Christmas brings peace into the world, but everywhere he shows up, violence is not far behind. I mean, we see in the scripture today, one of the darkest passages of scripture in the New Testament, that even in his infancy, Jesus causes problems for people. Bethlehem was a quiet little village until Jesus came to town. Why? Maybe you can relate. Maybe things were going pretty smoothly in your life until you began following Jesus and then that's when things began to fall apart. What's up with that? I hope today this well-known story will give us some insight into the sufferings we experience in light of the kingship of the Prince of Peace. I think one of the, the failings of the church in the generations before us has been to sugarcoat Christianity. That when you just come to Jesus, everything will be okay. You'll be able to pay your bills. Um, everything will go smoothly. Your family will love you. And they have severely handicapped us when it comes to dealing with the sufferings in this world. So what I want us to do is look at this historical event, this event recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, known as the Massacre of the Innocents. Then I pray we glean from it the underlying spiritual issues that are driving the cycle of violence, both then and now. So there's a lot in this passage that I just read. I could focus on the wise men. We could talk about the gifts they brought to us. We could try to figure out what's going on with this star that's moving all around. Um, there's a lots of stuff we could focus on. But what I feel like we need to hear this morning is what's going on in the violence. Why such an attack against Jesus Christ and the people who identify with him? So I want to look at the cycles that are driving the violence. And there are three phases in this cycle that we see in this passage. First is King Jesus announced, King Jesus attacked, and King Jesus triumphant. King Jesus announced, King Jesus attacked, and King Jesus triumphant. We'll see this flow in this passage, and then you will see this cycle in your life. The first, King Jesus announced. The story begins with the wise men coming to Jerusalem asking, where is he born king of the Jews? Notice that Jesus was born king. 
He didn't ascend to kingship through politics and his kingly status was not conferred to him later on in life. No, Jesus is Lord by nature of who he is. Jesus is Lord by nature of who he is. The sentence, Jesus is Lord, is true all by itself. It needs no modifiers. Jesus is born king because Jesus was born God. And we we looked at this last week with his name, Emmanuel, God with us, God taking on flesh. So Jesus is born God, therefore he is the supreme sovereign. He is judge of all, and no one is in the position to judge the legitimacy of his kingship. In other words, you don't decide to make Jesus your Lord. Jesus is your Lord. He is your Lord, whether you like it or not. Jesus is Lord by nature of who he is. He was born king. Now, the wise men, they knew this because they saw his star. So, you see, the wise men, they were uh, magi in some of your translations. It'll say magi, and this is uh, the word that we get magician from. Uh, Most likely, they're what we would call mystics today. Um, They were interested in things like dreams, astrology, magic, and ancient books that predict the future. Stuff like that. So today, they'd probably have their own show on the History Channel. And it's like aliens. But we don't know much about them other than what is recorded in the Bible. But we know that they saw a star, which is some sort of astronomical anomaly, that that star caught their attention because it signified a coming king. And there are a couple of hypotheses regarding how they knew that the star meant what it meant and that the star had a relationship to Jesus and this king. The first hypothesis is that they were familiar with Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24. Um, Some people would say that they may may have been taught in the school that Daniel established in Babylon um, and be familiar with the uh, Jewish scriptures. But Numbers 24, 17 says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Another hypothesis is that in this time, there was a general expectancy in the east that a great king would be arising out of Israel. We get this from Josephus and others who tell us that there was this expectancy in this time. And I wonder if each of these couldn't inform one another. I wonder if it's not that the prophecy of the ancient text of Numbers was known, which fed this expectancy that there was going to be a great king coming out of Israel. But either way, they saw the sign and they came seeking the king. And here's the point. The Magi saw the glory of Christ, his star, They acknowledged his lordship and sought him in faith. The Christian sees the glory of Christ in the gospel, acknowledges his lordship and seeks him in faith. You see, it isn't enough to make intellectual assent that Jesus is the Messiah. You must submit and seek and worship. You must come to him. 
So today, if all you've ever done is make lip service to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I invite you to, to come to him and worship. He's a good king. The next insight into King Jesus announced is that the proclamation of the good news isn't always received as good news. That can be confusing sometimes because we say the gospel is good news. Well, why do people react so hostile towards the pronouncing? It's because the, the proclamation of the good news isn't always received as good news. Verse three, Herod, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Heard what? That the king of the Jews was born that the Messiah had come, that the long-expected good shepherd was here to lead his people into green pastures. This is good news, but Herod was troubled. Now, at this point, some insight into who King Herod actually was will be helpful. Herod the Great, as we know him today, he was king of Judea from 37 BC to four, uh, some people say one BC, it's kind of debatable when he died. But what we know about him is that he was a brilliant politician. I mean, he had a silver tongue. He convinced Mark Antony and Octavian to, to insert him into uh, Judea as king by just his silver tongue and his political connections that he had with his father. So he was well connected within Rome. He built amazing cities and palaces. And what's cool about his cities and palaces as it relates to this passage is that he, he prided himself in building projects that seemed impossible. The cities he built, the port in Caesarea that he built is not the kind of place where a port could be possible to build. It's a, a, a wonder that this city exists, but he did it to prove that he could defeat nature. He wanted his name to be great that he could defeat nature. He built a palace that hung off of a cliff. It looks like it's um, basically just taunting gravity, but he did it to make a name for himself. So he was an amazing king in worldly standards, but he was also an extremely paranoid man. He wasn't a blood Jew. Did you know that, that Herod was not a blood Jew? His father was an Edomite, who converted to Judaism. His mother was an Arab princess. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Jews and Edomites did not get along. Edomites are the descendants of Esau, whereas Jews are the descendants of Jacob. And we know there is a struggle between these two lines that goes back centuries. And so for this reason, the people did not like him. He was not, they didn't see them as a legitimate king. And this is important, that the fact that Herod was not a blood Jew is significant for a couple reasons. One is theological and the other is political. It is theologically significant because it was prophesied in Genesis 49.10, all the way back in Genesis, that the scepter would depart Judah before the coming of the Messiah. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now Shiloh is a, another name for the Messiah to come. And so what this scripture is saying is that the, the scepter, the, the ruling staff of the kings would not depart Judah until Shiloh comes. 
And so by Herod being a non-Jew, not from the tribe of Judah, becoming king, this signifies the departing of the scepter from Judah, which is like a flashing light say, hey, the Messiah is here. Politically, this is important because the Jewish people did not like Herod. Like I said, they, they saw him as an illegitimate king. And for this reason and many more, Herod was always paranoid that he would lose his power, probably because he, he stole it from the guy before him. And it was this power-hungry paranoia that led him to kill at least six members of his own family over a period of 25 to 30 years. That includes three sons, his beloved wife who he was obsessed with, his, her mother and her brother. And each one of those were killed because he feared that they were conspiring to remove him from power. He killed his last two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, five days before he died because he thought they were making the move too quick to, to secede him. He knew he was dying. But this is the kind of paranoid, power-hungry, prideful man that King Herod was. So, knowing the lengths that Herod was willing to go to protect his kingship, Imagine now how the question of the wise men rang in his ears. Where is he born king of the Jews? And that is why all of Jerusalem was troubled by this question. Because they knew nothing would incite the carnage of King Herod like that question. So let us learn now why it is that the gospel of Jesus Christ offends When you announce that the new king has come to town, the old king does not like it and will not tolerate it. And we are all more like King Herod than we'd like to admit. We may not rule kingdoms, but we sure like ruling, don't we? And that is why some of you recoil from Christianity. Because Christianity says Jesus is Lord not you. Jesus controls your life, not you. And you do not want to let go. But my friend, what you're holding on to will kill you. It controls you. You see, the paradox of Christianity is that it is only when you submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ that you are actually free. So the gospel is offensive because the call to worship is simultaneously a call to war. So I wonder if you think about that. When I stand up here Sunday after Sunday and read the call to worship, I wonder if you realize that I'm calling you to war, calling you to battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when we preach the gospel to our friends and invite them to worship the Lord, we're also inviting them to step into a battle. This war has been going on since the beginning. Satan has been trying to steal worship from God since his fall. And in Genesis 3.15, after deceiving Eve and the fall of Adam, in God's issuing of covenant curses upon Satan, he preaches the gospel. God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so from that point on, a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent 
begins. And there is no neutrality in this affair. The deadliest myth of our time is the myth of neutrality. You cannot be neutral in respect to the kingdom of Christ. Either you are the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. There is no middle ground. So if you're playing on both sides of the fence today, I say this with as much love as I can. Stop being a coward and admit whose side you're really on. And be all in. Because worship is war. What good is it for a soldier to pretend like he's neutral in the battle? He's just going to get killed and he's going to kill those around him. So be all in. That leads us to the next phase of the cycle. Once King Jesus is announced, we see King Jesus attacked. Upon hearing of this threat to his kingdom, Herod begins to plot against the Lord's anointed. He interrogates the wise men and sends them to find the boy king. So notice the two fronts upon which the attack is leveraged. And it's the same two fronts in which the battle is fought today. The first is religious pretense. Religious pretense. Herod said, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now we know he's being deceitful here, but he's pretending to have a religious affection for Jesus. The second is secular violence. So when the first plan didn't work, Herod leveraged his power. He leveraged the power of government to suppress the coming of Christ's kingdom. And while both styles of attack, both religious pretense and secular violence, are common today and are in effect today, the second is the most obvious and gets the most attention. But I believe that it is the first that is most dangerous in our context here in Valdosta, Georgia. Attacking King Jesus via religious pretense in Valdosta, Georgia looks something like this. Hey, as long as you go to church when you can, I mean, don't inconvenience yourself, but go to church when you can, be nice to people, and most importantly, vote Republican. If you're a good Christian boy, that's all that matters. You don't need to be one of those radicals. We're all human. God will forgive us. There's no worship of the glory of Christ. There's no pursuit of holiness in order to be more like him. This religiosity is from the same pit of hell as ISIS. And it will damn just as many souls if the full gospel is not proclaimed. The religious pretense route didn't work for Herod and it will not work for you. So he moved to the second route, violence. And don't we see that pattern today? I mean, look at America. Look at the history of America. Generations of cultural Christianity didn't work So now we're entering into a new era of suppressing the kingdom of Christ by force. 
Although it doesn't look like rounding up and slaughtering babies. Well, maybe it does. As the blood of 60 million since 1973 cries from the earth for justice. In our culture, it looks like tolerance. If you preach that only Jesus has the authority to determine the number of genders because he created them, you're done. You're out. And unless the church gets back into battle and preaches the efficacious word of God with passion and moral credibility, things will continue to get worse. But guess what? The tide can be turned because King Jesus is triumphant. Jesus escapes the plot of Herod every time. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. So we're not stuck. He's not left us. The wise men and Joseph were warned of Herod's murderous plan. So the wise men leave by another way. They escape and go back to their home. And the holy family flees overnight to Egypt, which was out of Herod's jurisdiction. And I want to just kind of take a sidebar here and point out the significance that Jerusalem, um, sorry, Bethlehem was only five miles from Jerusalem. And just see the providence of God in this. Herod could have easily gathered up a posse and sent him into Bethlehem and, and caught Jesus just like that. Unexpected surprise attack. But he sends the wise man until it has them to report back to him. So you're looking at how long does it take to, to walk five miles? I don't know. I'm not about to try it. I bet Sherry Welch can run it in five minutes. But God's purposes cannot be thwarted. All right, back on the train. In verse 16, we read the sentence by which Herod the Great will forever be remembered. A heinous and wicked act. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This would have been me. We just had our son's first birthday party yesterday. This would have been us. There would have been many of you. This is a dark passage. Dark passage. And I want to address a few concerns with this. This is one of those, can this really be true moments in the Bible? I don't know about you, but there's many times where I read the Bible, I find myself in doubt, and it's like, there's no way. There's no way this is true. And this is one of those passages where I can't it really be. The skeptics often question the historicity of this event. And I think it's important that we deal honestly with our doubts, that we not shy away or run away from the truth because God is the God of truth. It's not like we're trying to hide anything. You see, everything we know about Herod the Great, and this is interesting, we know more about Herod the Great than any other single person from that era of history. Everything we know about him, we know because it was recorded by Josephus, the Jewish historian. Yet Josephus doesn't record this event. And for that reason, a lot of secular critics say this didn't actually happen. 
This is some legend that the early Christians made up. And on top of that, you read this and you go, really, could someone really murder an entire city's worth of babies? And there are perfectly reasonable explanations for both of these objections. First, why didn't Josephus say anything about it? Well, for one, he probably didn't know about it. So if you, you watch the History Channel, this is why I'm going through this, because if you watch the History Channel this time of year, there's all these nonsense documentaries that talk about this stuff. So that's why I'm talking about it. Josephus probably didn't know about it. You're like, wait, how could he not know about this? This is like Herod's biggest thing. How does he not know about it? But remember, Josephus wrote around the same time, a little after the completion and distribution of the New Testament. So more than likely, he had never read the Gospel of Matthew. He was a zealous Jew. And since Bethlehem was a tiny town with, and with the high infant mortality rate that they had in those days, there were probably no more than a dozen or so boys under two years old in Bethlehem. Does that blow your mind? It blew my mind when I was studying this. Because we have this picture in our mind of thousands of babies slaughtered and just rivers of blood. The number 14,000 comes into play. And we have this picture thanks to the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church in their Feast of the Innocents. And this tradition has no basis in reality of truth. There isn't 14,000 infants in all of Lowndes County. Even if you quadrupled the population, and I, I looked up the census data. The population of Bethlehem in that time is estimated to have been around 300. So, this room, pretty much. And how many children under two years old are in that daycare down there in the nursery? It doesn't add up. And remember, it says uh, in all that region, they killed the babies as well. And some people's like, well, it's, it's the whole region, the coastlands. Um, but remember, Bethlehem's only five miles from Jerusalem. That's from here to the mall as a crow flies. So it couldn't include the whole area. We're talking about a few villages on the outskirts of town. So we're looking at no more than 20 peasant boys were killed. And so the death of a dozen or so boys in this insignificant peasant town isn't going to catch the attention of a historian who is recording the major events in the life of King Herod. Talking about the same King Herod and around this time, this happens at the end of Herod's life. Same Herod who is murdering his sons and his whole family and political enemies. He was a very twisted, wicked man. And that's leads us to the next question, of the emotional question of how could someone actually do this? And at this point, like I said, it's the end of his life. He's far from a rational thinker. In fact, we know that he wanted people to mourn. He's in his late 60s, early 70s, which is in this time very old. He was suffering from what most scholars think was chronic kidney disease, very painful. And he knew he was dying. And he knew that when he died, the people of Judea would celebrate because they, they didn't like him. They knew that he would celebrate and that uh, the new king from the Hasmonean tribe would, would take his place and the king would be back to Ju Judah. He knew they would celebrate and that drove him crazy. So he arranged for all the important leaders in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. He allowed for all, he arranged for all them to be gathered up, arrested and murdered on the day that he died so that there would be weeping on the day of his death. This is the Herod we're talking about. And the same time, he's a sick, 
twisted man. He only cares about himself. And thankfully, his sister, who he put in charge of that plot, did not go through with it when she realized what, they, what he was trying to do. But innocent bloodshed was no issue for him. He was all about protecting his own power. So we have no reason to doubt the truthfulness of this dark portion of Matthew's gospel. And this utter darkness shows the length the world will go to rage against the Lord's anointed. And yet no matter how sinister the plot or how brutal the attack, it will always be in vain. That's what I want you to hear. No matter how sinister the attack, it will always be in vain. And you've heard me use this phrase, the Lord's anointed, a couple times this morning. This comes from Psalm 2. So if you open your Bibles up to Psalm 2, it's on page 448. You're going to read the whole thing. It's so relevant to this passage. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want anything to do with them. They're not going to tie us down. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Wow. This is not so relevant. The plot is in vain. And you see, it wasn't the wise men. See, Herod was mad because he thought the wise men tricked him. But it wasn't the wise men who tricked Herod. It was the Lord himself. Herod's making his plot, his evil plot. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? The Lord has set his king on Zion and his purposes cannot be thwarted. So what this means for us is that even when things are grim, even when the pain is unbearable, even the death of your infant sons, Christ is accomplishing his purpose. What I'm not saying is that when King Jesus is triumphant, that there will be smooth sailing because that would be a lie. I've already talked about that. But what I'm saying is that though the enemy may rage, and rage he will, you will not be overtaken. There was real suffering for many families in and around Bethlehem. Real children were really murdered, and it really hurts. And I'm sure that just as you're asking now, they, in the agony of loss, were asking why. Is there a meaning to my suffering? And it's a perfectly natural question to ask. For consider the consolation of knowing the fruit of your suffering. Haven't we all been there? We wanna know what is the fruit of our suffering? 
the hope of knowing that your pain is not in vain, that God is doing something way bigger than you could ever imagine. And I, I read this quote I'm about to share in a commentary in my studies, and it just blows me away every time. It says, O ye mothers of Bethlehem, I think I hear you asking why your innocent babes should be the ram caught in the thicket while Isaac escapes. I cannot tell you, but one thing I know, that ye shall, some of you, live to see a day when that babe of Bethlehem shall be himself the ram caught in another sort of thicket in order that your babes may escape a worse doom than they now endure. And if these babes of yours be now in glory through the dear might of that blessed babe, will they not deem it their honor that the tyrant's rage was exhausted upon themselves instead of their infant Lord? Well, will they not deem it their honor that the tyrant's rage was exhausted upon themselves instead of their infant Lord? And you see, these mothers, they could have never known what was going to happen 30 years from then. That this child who caused them so much pain would one day lay down his own life in order to bear their pain, to atone for their sin, and to save them from the wrath, from, not from the wrath of King Herod, but from the wrath of God, who is infinitely more terrifying than Herod. And so in verse 18, we see Rachel weeping for her children who are no more. And this is a prophecy from Jeremiah 31, 15. It is thought that the, woman, the women of Bethlehem identified with Rachel um, since she was buried in that area. And so there's a double meaning in this prophecy. The most obvious is that Rachel being figurative of all the women in Bethlehem who've lost their children. She's in deep mourning, as you would expect. She refuses to be comforted. But the second is less obvious, but greatly significant with regard to redemptive history. This passage in Jeremiah 31, we may be familiar with that number because it is most known for the prophecy of the coming of the new covenant. But this passage, Jeremiah 31, 15, is originally about the return of Israel from exile in Babylon. It's in the context of hope. God is saying to them, hey, I've heard your tears. I felt your pain and I will not leave you here any longer. I'm bringing you home. There is hope behind the tears. And the fact that Matthew points to this being the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 15 is huge. I wonder if you realize how big this is. This is how D.A. Carson puts it. The tears of the exile are now being fulfilled, i.e. the tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come. The exile is over. The true son of God has arrived and he will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. So these infant martyrs mark this turning point in redemptive history with their blood. And Jesus sealed it forever with his. See, it's the blood that purchases and seals for us the new covenant. Jesus said when he was instituting the Lord's Supper, he said, take this cup, drink of it, 
For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the exile is over. We are no longer captive by sin and Satan. For the fatal blow in the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman has been delivered. See, what the first Christmas was, was a cosmic invasion in the war of the ages. God literally invaded the world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Taking on flesh, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. You see in Colossians, and this was accomplished at the cross. Many people have illustrated it this way, that Christmas was D-Day. Now, most of you probably know a lot more about D-Day than I do, but here's the parallel. The massive invasion on D-Day marked the end of the war. Although more fighting continued with more loss of life and more suffering, the remaining battles were simply ripple effects from the initial invasion of Normandy. Normandy. The remaining battles was the application of the death blow delivered on D-Day. And in this ripple effect is where we find ourselves now, in the already but not yet. In reality, the war is over. Christ is triumphant, but there are still ripple effects. And at times, the losers play dirty because they know that their time is short. But do not fear. All they can do is kill us. And then we just get to go to heaven, which is far better. And we'll be raised on the last day in vindication while they are raised to eternal destruction unless the Lord grants repentance. So what are we to do? What do we do in the meantime, in this time between the triumph of the kingdom of Christ and its final consummation at his return? Simply put, we are to live lives of godliness trusting in the unstoppable power of God. Is there an idol, a sin in your life that occupies the throne of your affections, ruling you in violent paranoia, slowly killing you from the inside out? Hear the word announced to you this morning. King Jesus is here. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Submit to his rule and live free forever. His infinite wisdom, power, mercy, and grace has triumphed over him who has held you captive for so long. Walk in the freedom he has won for you. It is yours. Take, eat of the best bread. Drink of the finest wine. For the exile's over. We're going home. And when we have experienced the triumph of Christ, we are to go as his ambassadors. You see, the great shepherd king is ruling the nations, and he is gathering his sheep from folds scattered across the world. You see in John 10, 16. And he's doing this through us. That was his great commission. All authority has been given to me, not Herod. 
Go therefore and disciple the nations. But check this out. We don't have to go alone. He goes with us. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God with us, Emmanuel. So let's go. Making the royal announcement, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And the cycle begins again. King Jesus announced, King Jesus attacked, and King Jesus triumphant. And this cycle will repeat and repeat and repeat every time the announcement is made until knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. So this time I ask the band to come up. We're gonna get ready to sing. But lastly, I just want to invite you today to plant your flag in the ground for Jesus. Move all your chips over into his square, the winning square. Be counted worthy to suffer for the glory of Christ. And if our fate is to join the innocent babes of Bethlehem, let us die with joy. For then will we live. This is the gospel. So let's pray. Lord, may me believe this. Give us the gift of faith. That is what we need, to truly believe. Truly believe your word. And to live submitted, surrendered to your glorious, gentle rule. Will you build among us a bond that is unbreakable through the Holy Spirit so that we will fight together, that we will pick up our fallen brother beside us, carry him over our shoulders if we need to, and get back into battle? We long to see the day when our swords are beating the plowshares, where we no longer have to strategize how to evangelize the nations because they will know you. They won't need to be taught. God, would you give us the pleasure of being part of this amazing work you're doing? God, be near to the mothers who refuse to be comforted, whose suffering is incredible. And would you remind them that Jesus knows their sufferings? that he's not hiding away in Egypt to avoid it. No, that he entered in headlong into their pain and that he is dealing with it and has dealt with it. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Pray now that you help us to sing glory, glory. We have no other king but Jesus, the Lord of all. Pray this in his name. Amen.